Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Salt Water Part 2, where we'll discuss the diagnosis and management of hyponatremia. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Welcome to part two of our discussion about hyponatremia, which is based on a recent article published in JAMA titled Diagnosis and Management of Hyponatremia. If you haven't yet had a chance to read the article, be sure to place it on your to-do list, as it's a great summary of a complex topic. Moving on from our last episode, we're now going to discuss how to further diagnose the cause of a patient's hypovolemic hyponatremia after measuring urine sodium concentration, osmolality and specific gravity. So firstly, it's worthwhile stating that measuring the urine sodium concentration, regardless of the type of hypotonic hyponatremia, helps in determining the underlying pathophysiology and subsequent cause. And that's regardless of whether the patient has hypovolemic, euvolemic or hypervolemic hyponatremia. The recommendation is to progress to these measurements if the cause of the hyponatremia remains uncertain after taking a history, performing a clinical examination and assessing the patient's extracellular volume status. To start with, we'll discuss hypovolemic hyponatremia. When measuring the urinary sodium concentration, the result can be classified as either over 30 milliequivalents per litre or under 30 milliequivalents per litre. If the result returns as a urinary concentration over 30, this tells us that the urine sodium concentration is high and that the pathophysiological process causing the hypovolemic hyponatremia is keenly loss of sodium. Conversely, if the urinary sodium concentration is under 30, this tells us that the urine contains a low concentration of sodium and that the pathophysiological process behind our hypovolemic hyponatremia is non-kidney losses, which include, for example, vomiting, diarrhea or hemorrhage. Page 285 of the JAMA article has a huge box breaking down all the causes of hypotonic hyponatremia based on the volume status and pathophysiology, so check it out because we can't talk about every single cause today. Regardless of whether the urinary sodium concentration is high or low and whether the sodium loss is kidney or non-kidney related, the process leading to the development of hypovolemic hyponatremia is that there is a reduction in the effective arterial blood volume leading to elevated levels of vasopressin, decreased water diuresis and water retention. Next, we're moving on to hypervolemic hypotonic hyponatremia. Now again, if the underlying cause remains unclear, the recommendation is to measure the urinary sodium concentration and again, we classify the results based on whether the urinary sodium is high with a result of greater than 30 milliequivalents per litre or low with a result of less than 30 milliequivalents per litre. High urinary sodium in the presence of hypervolemia suggests that the cause is either an acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease. 
The process causing this type of hyponatremia results from a decreased glomerular filtration rate and an inability to dilute the urine, which leads to decreased water diuresis and subsequent water retention. Low urinary sodium in the presence of hypervolemia tells us that the cause is either heart failure, cirrhosis, or the nephrotic syndrome. In these cases, though the patients are hypervolemic, they have a reduced effective arterial blood volume, so they're intravascularly depleted, which leads to the release of elevated levels of vasopressin, decreased water diuresis and water retention, and thus resulting in hypervolemic, hypotonic hyponatremia. And lastly, we then have the evaluation of urinary chemistry in patients with euvolemic hypotonic hyponatremia. Again, the recommendation is only to progress to performing these tests if the exact cause of the hyponatremia remains uncertain after a focused history and examination. When analysing urine chemistry in the presence of euvolemic hypotonic hyponatremia, the recommendation is to analyse the urine sodium concentration in combination with either the urine osmolality or the urine specific gravity. If you're uncertain of the meaning of specific gravity, it's a measure of all of the particles present in the urine and gives an indication of whether the urine is concentrated or dilute. We can approximate the urine specific gravity from the urine osmolality, where an osmolality of 100 millimoles per kilo approximates a urine specific gravity of 1.003. 300 millimoles per kilo approximates a urine specific gravity of 1.010. And 500 millimoles per kilo approximates a urine specific gravity of 1.020. In a nutshell, the higher the specific gravity, the more concentrated the urine. The normal range for urine osmolality is 50 to 1,200 millimoles per kilo, and for specific gravity, that normal range is 1.005 to 1.030. For these patients, a urinary sodium concentration of greater than 30 milliequivalents per litre and a specific gravity of greater than 1.003 and a urine osmolality of greater than 100 millimoles per kilogram indicates that the cause of the euvolemic hypotonic hyponatremia is one of either the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion or SIADH, glucocorticoid deficiency, or severe hypothyroidism. If the urinary analysis returns with a urine sodium concentration of less than 30 milliequivalents per litre, specific gravity of less than 1.003, and a urine osmolality of less than 100 millimoles per kilogram, this points to either excessive water intake or low solute intake as the cause for the euvolemic hypotonic hyponatremia. So this seems like a good time to talk more about SIADH, but also how to discuss how it differs from cerebral salt wasting, because generally there seems to be a lot of confusion between the two. Yeah, that's right. And look, I seem to remember finding the two conditions quite confusing when I was studying for my part two exam. But look, today our aim is just to make them as easy to understand as possible. So starting with SIADH, the underlying pathophysiologic process is that the secretion of antidiuretic hormone, also known as vasopressin, is inappropriate. As we explained in part one, in physiologically normal individuals, HDH secretion occurs in response to an increase in blood tonicity and a decrease in the effective arterial blood volume, or in other words, when we're intravascularly dry with more concentrated blood. Antidiuretic hormone secretion results in the reabsorption of water from the nephron's collecting duct, so we end up producing more concentrated urine, which allows us to continue to excrete the body's waste, but with minimal loss of water. Conversely, if we drink a lot of water, the subsequent increase in arterial blood volume and reduction in blood tonicity lowers the secretion of ADH, which allows us to excrete the excess water via the kidney without it being reabsorbed. Essentially, in physiologically normal people, the secretion of ADH is highly variable throughout the day. 
By comparison, patients with SIADH cannot suppress the secretion of antidiuretic hormone via the usual physiological feedback mechanisms. It is a disorder of impaired water excretion. In these patients, the ongoing and more constant secretion of ADH results in ongoing water reabsorption and retention regardless of whether it is physiologically appropriate or not, and this results in urine with a relatively fixed osmolality. In these patients, ingestion of water does not adequately suppress ADH secretion. Their urine remains concentrated and they reabsorb water, which increases total body water and dilutes and lowers the plasma sodium concentration. Now, as well as this, the increase in the total body water also increases the volume of extracellular fluid which then triggers urinary sodium excretion. This compensatory mechanism returns the extracellular fluid volume to normal, but does this through further urinary sodium excretion, which lowers the plasma sodium concentration even more. There are lots of different conditions that can cause SIADH, and these can be classified into the following groups. Malignancies, which includes pulmonary, mediastinal, nasopharyngeal, GI and GU tumours. Drugs, which can be further subclassified into, firstly, stimulants of the synthesis or release of ADH, and these include nicotine, antineoplastic agents, and narcotics, just to name a few. Secondly, arginine vasopressin-like compounds and enhancers of its action, and these include things like desmopressin and oxytocin, again, just to name a few. And lastly, drugs with either a mixed or an unknown effect, and these include ACE inhibitors, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and ecstasy. CNS disorders, including head trauma and mass lesions, amongst others. Pulmonary conditions like infections, asthma, COPD, cystic fibrosis, acute respiratory failure, and positive pressure ventilation. And other conditions, of which those that are most relevant to our practice include pain, severe nausea, general anaesthesia, and the post-operative state. For a really complete list of causes, we'll refer you to the table on page 285 of the JAMA article, or alternatively, UpToDate has some great articles about SIADH. So now let's compare SIADH to the far less common cerebral salt wasting. And the reason for discussing the pathophysiology now will become clearer when we go on to talk about treatment. Cerebral salt wasting can occur in patients with central nervous system disease, but in particular, those with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Inappropriate sodium losses in the urine result in hyponatremia and extracellular fluid volume depletion. Clinically, these patients have hypovolemic hypotonic hyponatremia rather than the euvolemic hypotonic hyponatremia seen with SIADH. The mechanism behind the salt wasting in this condition is not very well understood, but there are two pathophysiological proposals for this process. The first is that there is disruption of the sympathetic nervous system inputs to the kidney. The sympathetic nervous system is known to cause sodium, uric acid and water reabsorption in the proximal tubule, as well as causing renin release. And this disruption could explain the reduced sodium and uric acid resorption in the proximal tubule that is seen in cerebral salt wasting, as well as the impaired release of renin and aldosterone. As well as this, serum aldosterone levels fail to increase in the setting of volume depletion seen in cerebral salt wasting. And this may also account for the absence of renal potassium loss, despite there being an increase in distal sodium delivery. The second pathophysiological process for the mechanism of salt wasting is that a circulating factor exists and is excreted in patients with brain pathology that inhibits distal sodium reabsorption, and the main potential culprit for this is the brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP. It decreases sodium reabsorption and inhibits renin release. 
It may also decrease central nervous system autonomic outflow at the level of the brainstem. So what's the point of explaining all of this? Well, really, it's to reinforce the fact that the elevated antidiuretic hormone excretion that is seen in cerebral salt wasting is not the underlying cause for this condition. It occurs in reaction to the hypovolemia that occurs after sodium loss from the kidney results in extracellular fluid volume loss. And the importance in splitting hairs here when trying to understand the pathological process going on is that it impacts the way we treat these two conditions. Now, there are three facets to treating hyponatremia occurring as a result of SIADH. And these are treatment of the underlying disease, if it's possible, initial therapy to raise the serum sodium, and prolonged therapy in patients with prolonged or persistent SIADH. So now we're going to focus on initial therapy aimed at raising the serum sodium. Fluid restriction in combination with oral salt tablets, sometimes in combination with a loop diuretic, is the mainstay of treatment for SIADH. For patients with severe, symptomatic or resistant hyponatremia, the administration of intravenous hypertonic saline may be required. Fluid restriction often occurs with a goal of less than 800 mils of fluid consumption per day, but in patients whose serum sodium concentration is lower than the combined concentration of urinary sodium and potassium, fluid restriction alone won't work. As we said previously, patients with SIADH have a relatively fixed urinary osmolality. In these patients, urine output is determined by the ingestion of and subsequent urinary excretion of solutes, mainly sodium salts and urea. A high solute diet or oral salt tablets increases the urine output by increasing solute excretion. As we mentioned previously, this therapy can be combined with loop diuretics, which further interferes with the kidney's urine concentrating ability and lowers the urine osmolality through forced diuresis. We know that fluid restriction plays an important role in treating the hyponatremia associated with SIADH, but it is absolutely not advised when treating patients with cerebral salt wasting, particularly those that have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and this is for two reasons. The first is that ongoing salt loss will continue despite fluid restriction because the pathological process causing the hyponatremia is renal sodium loss rather than inappropriate diuresis. The second reason is that in patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, the worsening hypovolemia that would be seen in fluid-restricted patients would lower blood pressure and increase the patient's risk of cerebral infarction. Cerebral salt wasting is a transient and short-term condition whose main treatment is the administration of hypertonic saline. This serves to both correct the hyponatremia, prevent complications from hyponatremia-induced brain swelling, and to preserve cerebral perfusion. Resolution of cerebral salt wasting usually occurs within three to four weeks. Now, there is a lot more to each of these conditions than we've discussed in today's episode. And if you want to know more, we've included references in our episode notes. So we're now going to deviate back to our discussion about hyponatremia in general and finish with a discussion on the ways in which we treat this condition. In general, treatment regimens can be separated into two groups emergency treatment and non-emergency treatment. Emergency treatment is reserved for patients with moderately severe to severe physical manifestations of hyponatremia, from vomiting and confusion to somnolence, seizures and cardiorespiratory arrest. And the types of patients often seen to develop hyponatremia requiring emergency treatment are those in the post-operative state with self-induced water intoxication or ecstasy users, as well as some patients with pre-existing intracranial pathology. Typically, these patients have acute euvolemic hyponatremia. That said, some patients with severe symptoms have an element of acute on chronic hyponatremia or extreme chronic hyponatremia. 
Generally speaking, the more acute the hyponatremia, the greater the risk of complications from the hyponatremia, like cerebral edema and seizures, and the greater the need for aggressive therapy. The more chronic the hyponatremia and the lower the serum sodium concentration, the greater the risk from overly aggressive therapy. These patients need closer monitoring and a greater level of attention to avoid overcorrection. There are four goals to treating hyponatremia, and these are one, to prevent a further decline in serum sodium, two, to prevent brain herniation, three, to relieve the symptoms of hyponatremia, and four, to avoid overcorrection. Immediate management of the symptomatic patient with severe hyponatremia may include the following. Administration of supplemental oxygen, intubation and mechanical ventilation, administering anticonvulsant medications, ICU admission, and withholding drugs that can induce hyponatremia as well as hypotonic fluids. For these patients, correction of the hyponatremia occurs with the administration of hypotonic 3% saline. The US guidelines and the European guidelines are actually quite similar in regard to their advice for correcting hyponatremia and administering hypotonic saline, and both can be found in Table 1 on page 286 of the JAMA article. We'll only be talking about the American guidelines, though. So for these patients, the rate of rise of the serum sodium should be between 4 to 6 milliequivalents per litre within the first hour to two hours of initiating hypotonic saline. They recommend administering 100 mil boluses, either centrally or peripherally, over a period of 10 minutes, and up to three times as needed to attain the desired rise in serum sodium. These guidelines recommend retesting the serum sodium after every bolus, and every four to six hours over the first 24 hours. Overall, the recommended increase in serum sodium that should not be exceeded in the first 24 hours varies depending on the patient's risk for developing osmotic demyelination, where patients at low risk should not exceed 10 milliequivalents per litre within the first 24 hours and 18 milliequivalents per litre in the first 48 hours, and where patients at high risk should not exceed 8 milliequivalents per litre during any 24-hour period. Osmotic demyelination was previously known as central pontine myelinolysis, and according to UpToDate, patients at high risk of developing this condition include the following. Those with a serum sodium concentration of under 105 milliequivalents per litre, hypokalemia, alcoholism, malnutrition, liver disease, and possibly hypophosphatemia. Patients at low risk for osmotic demyelination include patients with acute hyponatremia that has developed over a few hours due to a marked increase in water intake, including marathon runners, patients with primary polydipsia, and ecstasy users. And also at low risk are patients whose serum sodium is over 120 milliequivalents per litre. It's important to remember that bolus therapy with 3% hypotonic saline may give high rates of overly rapid correction, as it is a fixed volume of fluid that is being recommended regardless of the patient demographic and clinical characteristics. As treatment is continued, there may be a transition to water diuresis in which urine flow of greater than 100 mL per hour can occur and this further increases the serum sodium concentration. To mitigate this, desmopressin can be administered, either proactively or or reactively, and the recommended dose is 2 to 4 micrograms parenterally every 6 to 8 hours. In the event of overly rapid correction of the serum sodium concentration, the recommendation for treatment is desmopressin and the administration of 5% dextrose in water to return the sodium to the recommended limit. It is also important to remember that correction of serum potassium whilst correcting the serum sodium can increase the risk of overly rapid correction of sodium. 
And we're sure it goes without saying that after emergency treatment is initiated and the patient is stable, that the underlying cause for the hyponatremia should be sought and treated also. Non-emergency treatment forms the basis of treatment for the vast majority of patients with hyponatremia, and for these patients, treating the underlying cause is of greatest importance. Patients with mild or moderate symptoms or whose serum sodium concentration is greater than 120 milliequivalents per litre can be managed as outpatients and don't require hospital admission. For patients with hypovolemic hyponatremia, isotonic saline administration can relieve volume depletion. Oral treatment can be provided through sodium chloride tablets or sodium-rich broths. Hypotonic fluids should be avoided. If there's any uncertainty as to the diagnosis of hypovolemic hyponatremia, a urine flow assessment can be undertaken after administering 1-2 to litres of isotonic saline. For patients with SIADH and euvolemic hyponatremia, the predominant therapeutic strategies are fluid restriction, increased solute intake, which includes sodium, protein and urea, and administering Vaptans. The degree of fluid restriction is governed by the following equation. The sum of the urine sodium and potassium levels divided by the serum sodium level. A ratio of less than 1 instructs the implementation of mild fluid restriction of less than 1.5 litres per day. Higher ratios above 1 require stricter fluid restriction of less than 1 litre a day. Gosh, that's some serious fluid restriction, isn't it? Yes. Imagine doing that in this weather. Oh, no way. (laughs) We're in Queensland. No. (laughs) So look, it's worthwhile noting also that patients with low urine flow of less than 1.5 litres per day and highly concentrated urine with a urine-specific gravity of greater than 1.020 and urine osmolality of greater than 500 millimoles per kilo are less likely to respond to fluid restriction. Increasing sodium intake via diet or with oral supplementation in combination with frusamide promotes water excretion, but the potential development of hypokalemia should be kept in mind and monitored. Other therapies that increase water diuresis include oral or enteral urea therapy, where 30 grams of urea is associated with one litre of water excretion where the urine osmolality is 500 millimoles per kilo. Increasing daily protein intake to 1 gram per kilo improves hyponatremia by stimulating urea therapy. Vaptans, which is a name I love, by the way, (laughs) Vaptans are medications that antagonize the vasopressin receptor 2 within the collecting duct to promote water diuresis. Intravenous conovaptan also blocks vasopressin receptor 1A and is associated with hypotension. It's only administered very short term. Other drugs like oral tolvaptan are used effectively for the longer-term management of SIADH. This drug group causes thirst, which tends to limit the rate of increase of serum sodium and subsequently decreases the risk of overly rapid serum sodium correction. And lastly, for patients whose hyponatremia is secondary to severe hypothyroidism or glucocorticoid deficiency, hormonal therapy with thyroxine or hydrocortisone is indicated. And lastly, we have hypervolemic hyponatremia. In these patients, particularly where heart failure is the primary cause, fluid restriction and an adjustment to the patient's usual medications will achieve better hemodynamics. Temporary cessation of diuretics may be required for the initial treatment of the hyponatremia, and correction of low serum potassium should also be undertaken with care. Rhea and Vaptans may also be useful in these patients. 
Patients with hyponatremia associated with liver failure are managed with fluid restriction, loop diuretics, and potassium replacement. And for patients with more severe hyponatremia and advanced liver disease, diuretics and antihypertensives should be withheld. Low serum potassium corrected and other therapies like hypertonic saline, albumin, and renal replacement therapy considered. For pre-transplant patients, serum sodium should be cautiously corrected to levels greater than 125 milliequivalents per litre prior to transplant. Urea and Vaptans are contraindicated in these patients. Well, it's hard to believe, but we've finally finished our discussion on hyponatremia. Is everyone still awake? (laughs) Um, Be sure to give the JAMA article a read as it contains discussion on the evidence that we haven't had the time to get into. Now, before we sign off, Kate, what have you learnt this week in anaesthesia? So something that I learned rec- you know, recently in anesthesia actually occurred as a result of a clinical situation I found myself in when I was on call. So the situation was this. We got a phone call about a patient that had presented to the emergency department that was mottled mm. from the waist down mm. and spectacularly unwell. This patient very recently had had open heart surgery for mm. bypass surgery and had previously had extensive re-plumbing done you know, mm. on their vasculature and essentially came in with a completely thrombosed sort of aorta, iliac arteries and femorals. Mm, mm. And the thing that I learned, and this was through working with a very senior vascular surgeon who was just brilliant in this situation, is that what they're doing now, and this is what we ended up doing, was instead of reperfusing and having a spectacularly big acid load on Mm. a patient that's just had major cardiac surgery, instead what they're doing is they're actually opening up the vein of each of the legs taking the blood out and putting it through cell salvage and actually Mm -hmm. washing the blood and then giving it back to the patient. So instead of dealing with an acid load, these patients are just dealing with hypovolemia. Mm. And so what we ended up doing with this patient, and it worked really, really well. So the patient got off to sleep. They were lined up the wazoo, as you could imagine. And the vascular surgeon opened the femoral vein on one leg. And we sort of estimated roughly that there'd be about 500 mils of blood Per leg, so mm. we we kind of factored in about 500 mils of blood. We pulled 500 mils of blood out of the limb once they did the embolectomy and got the clot out, and they mm-hmm. re-established arterial flow. Distal to the opening on the femoral vein, there was a clamp, so mm. there was no way of any of this blood getting back into the, the central proximal. Sorry, yeah, proximal. <laughs> Oops, I know I've been on leave, all but this, even I could. <laughs> honestly, all this talk about hyponatremia <laughs> fried my brain. So the surgeons had clamped mm, proximal. Mm. So there was no risk of any of this blood accidentally getting back Mm. into the circulation. And so we pulled off 500 mils of blood per leg, put it through cell salvage, gave it back to the patient, and the patient tolerated it remarkably well. Mm. I was shocked. Once we'd pulled off that 500 mils, and look, I won't lie, it was we're pulling off 500 mils of blood over several minutes. So it's a significant decrease in circulating blood volume over Mm. a short period of time. So obviously we had like noradrenaline running and we were giving a little bit of fluid and we were trying to correct that as best Mm, we could knowing mm. we were going to give a large volume of blood back. But then once once we'd pulled off 500 mils, the surgeon closed the femoral vein and then unclamped. So the acid load that the patient was dealing with was minute in Mm, comparison to what it would be mm. previously if we hadn't whipped off that 500 mils. And then we gave the patient the 500 mils back mm. and it actually worked remarkably well. And this was something, this vascular surgeon was telling me, it's something he'd done once at another hospital that had worked remarkably well. And particularly in this patient where we thought an acid load on this mm. heart was a very bad idea. Mm. It actually worked spectacularly yeah, well. So who knew? Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. So instead of dealing with a 
spectacularly unwell, mm. acidotic, mm. hyperkalemic patient, mm. really all I had to deal with was a little bit of hypovolemia and I actually got to say when they had to pause so that I could play <laughs> catch up. So it was much more controlled mm. and it actually worked really well. So it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. something yeah. interesting. That's what I learned this week. Now, Kate, I know you're on leave. <laughs> yes. But what have you have you learned anything this week in anesthesia? Well, um, yeah, I'm on extended leave, as you know, um, to look after a baby. But occasionally I can work my way through a book slowly because <laughs> I fall asleep quite quickly at night. <laughs> However, um, I did recently read, I actually got given it, I think, by a rep um, oh. for doing something at the college. Anyway, and um, it's the book about the Thai cave rescue. Um, oh, and it's, yes. It's ghost written, but it's, um, well, sort of, he's named, but it's written by Craig Challen and Richard Harris. And it's, um, there's obviously been heaps of, you know, Amazon, there's been an Amazon movie and Netflix series and all sorts oh, of things. Oh my gosh, there is. Um, the documentary on the Disney Channel is mm, phenomenal. I wouldn't mind saying that, but the book it is, is actually, like, I just kept turning to my husband being like, oh, and this happened and this thing happened. And it's kind of full of detail because yeah. it's from their perspective. And so, you know, I think it's a story personally that it just never gets old. It's just a oh, fantastic definitely. story. And so if you want to hear it straight from the words of, you know, the mouth of the anaesthetist that was there and the yeah. vet that was there, um, then I highly recommend this book. It's uh, it's an easy read and it's um, it just really takes you through it all again. Yeah. And I've really enjoyed that. So I learned a little bit about anesthesia in a Thai cave. Oh, gosh. Hope, and here's hoping you never have to put that knowledge in practice. I don't think I have the skills that required. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Honestly, I, I watched the documentary. I found it so stressful, mm. so stressful. Mm. And I, I take my hats off to everyone involved in that rescue because it was just a phenomenal effort. It was incredible. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So it's called Against All Odds, by the way. I don't know whether I mentioned that. But, um, yeah, it's a good book. Will Enjoy. do. I'll check it out. Well, it's been an intense but worthwhile discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. If you have any questions or comments, please drop us an email at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Listeners can tune in to hear us on most major podcast platforms and consultants and fellows don't forget to claim CPD for listening today. Instructions on how to do this are in our show notes. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.